We'll be reading Genesis chapter 12 from verse 10 to 20. Genesis 12, 10 to 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now and then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Thanks, Debbie. Uh, if you'd like to keep that passage open in front of you, and we'll look at that together. And as we do that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your word, and uh, we thank you for the time that we can spend now uh, gathered around it. We pray that as we do, that your spirit would be at work in our midst, that you would uh, reveal to us more of who you are and, and what you've done and what it means to, to know you uh, and, and to uh, experience the grace that you have so clearly displayed in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray you bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I wonder uh, which social media platform uh, you, you, you gravitate towards, if you have a particular one uh, that you use, maybe you use a few. Uh, I, I've tried to wean myself off them uh, over the last uh, couple of years, and, and, and generally now my, uh, the only one I'm really in any way engaged with uh, is Instagram. Uh, and I, I, I tend to use that largely to keep me up to speed with uh, the latest goings-on in the world of football. Um, uh, uh, to find out where the latest Leaf Cafe or eatery is opening up. It's also useful for that. And also, uh, it's, a, it's a great source of a, a regular supply of dad jokes. Uh, so every morning when I flick it on, uh, uh, there's, there's uh, these two guys sat by a lake uh, and they just tell dad jokes to one another. Um, this morning, I, I flicked it on and uh, the, 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 the joke uh, was, uh, I've got one thing to say to the guy who created zero. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> it's an endless supply. It's well worth, well worth following. I'll, I'll put you in the right direction of those guys later. Um, in my experience, Instagram uh, is, is definitely the least toxic of the social media platforms. It's largely populated with photos full of happy people or feel-good videos, stories of success and joyful life events. It's a place where uh, successes are often celebrated and congratulations are, are dished out. Of course, we know, don't we, that the, the Insta world is an airbrushed one. I can't remember the last time I saw a post about someone's failure. 
Those aren't the kind of things that we tend to, to shout about from the rooftops, are they? But of course, we know that, that real life is a story of failure as well as success, that each of us can look back on times of disappointment, uh, regret, uh, and shame, times where we have failed a test put before us. As Christians, it can be hard sometimes to know what to do with failure. We might be able to, to, to speak a, a, a freely maybe about failures in our lives before we followed Christ. And we can testify to God's grace in saving us often from some very obvious and destructive patterns of sin. But what about the, the failures that we are guilty of after we become Christians? How do we make sense of those? How does God's grace apply to those who've already been saved? Sometimes uh, Christians can have, uh, have a sense that they need to cover up post-conversion sin, as though they shouldn't be struggling with sin anymore. After all, we have God's Spirit living in us, enabling us to battle sin. Shouldn't that mean that the, the victory is ours every time? And we can tend towards a, a perfectionist mindset that, that holds ourselves and others to, to such high standards that we leave no room for failure. And when failure does occur, we can find the weight of guilt or condemnation unbearable. Well, the truth is that this side of eternity, there are no perfect Christians. God's people have always struggled with sin and failure. And we only need to consider the passage that we're looking at today to see that. Abraham makes his way into the hall of fame of the, the heroes of the faith that we have in Hebrews chapter 11. And yet these verses in Genesis chapter 12 are a warts and all description of a monumental failure in his life after God had called him. And yet despite his, in, in many ways, despicable behavior, Abraham's failure is not the lasting legacy of this story. The lasting legacy of this story is God's grace despite Abraham's sin. It's a story of God's grace for the faithful. But before we get to that grace, we need to spend a bit of time looking at the failure. Now, last week we were looking at, at the, the first part of this chapter, and it was a real high point in the story so far. We saw how God's promises to, to Abraham are a key moment in the Bible that, that shape everything from here on in. And we saw Abraham's prayer walk around Canaan as Abraham and his entourage left a legacy of worship to God wherever they went. What we have in the first part of Genesis 12 is an extraordinary public demonstration of faith in God's promises. Abraham started so well. He was on a real high. He wasn't ashamed to declare the name of God to people who hadn't heard it yet. You can sense the excitement in the first part of Genesis 12, the thrill of his newfound faith. And then in verse 10, it all comes crashing down. We read, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe 
in the land. So twice we're told in verse 10 of the famine in the land of Canaan. We're meant to get the idea that this was, was no brief shortage of bread, a, a few empty shelves at Tesco after a bout of panic buying. No, we're told it was severe. People were starving. This was a life-threatening situation. And so Abraham made what, what on the surface of it appeared to be a very reasonable decision. He took his family and he went down to Egypt. Egypt, of course, had the Nile running through it, which meant that it was well-placed to provide the food that they needed. I wonder, what would you have done in Abraham's situation? Your family are starving. Things are looking desperate. And you know that there is somewhere within traveling distance where you will find everything that you need. You can hardly blame Abraham for making the trip to Egypt. It, it seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But there was just one problem with Abraham's plan. He made it without God in mind. God had promised to be with him. He'd promised to establish a people through him. He'd promised him the land of Canaan. But confronted with a severe trial, Abraham lost sight of God's promises and he acted in fear instead of in faith. And Abraham's experience is one that, that I'm sure many of us can relate to, that, that it's often after times of encouragement in our faith that we can face severe testing. And it's in these moments when that test comes that we will either cling to God in the midst of our trial and grow in steadfastness, or we'll try and do things in our own strength. And sadly, on this occasion, Abraham, he failed the test. He, he went for the latter. He took matters into his own hands and headed down to Egypt. He failed to trust in God's promises. And the results weren't pretty. If you look with me at verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Now, there's a lot in there, uh, but the first thing that we have to deal with are the references to Sarai's beauty. And I, I have to tread pretty carefully uh, here. Sarai would have been about 65 uh, when this incident happened. Now, of course, beauty knows no age. Uh, and certainly in the eye of the beholder, Abraham no doubt thought that his wife was beautiful. But it wasn't just Abraham. When the Egyptians saw her, we're told, verse 14, that they saw that the woman was very beautiful. Now, notice there, she is not described by name. The Egyptians, they were only interested in her as an object of beauty. They thought she was an absolute stunner. Kent Hughes comments, evidently, Sarai was a knockout and remained the same for a long time. We must remember that the patriarchal lifespan was still about double our own. Abraham died at 175, Sarah at 127. 
Sarai's 60s would be equivalent to our 30s and 40s, and her 90 years at the birth of Isaac to our 50s. Sarah's eye-stopping Mesopotamian beauty no doubt dazzled the Egyptians, and that could be a problem. Abram had substantial reason to fear. So Abram, he knew that Sarai was desirable, that the Egyptians would treat her like an object. And so out of fear, he chose to do the same thing. He selfishly and shamefully put his wife in danger in order to protect his own skin. He sacrificed Sarah's safety and dignity in an effort to preserve his own. Now, we know from the other week that, that technically what Abraham was suggesting was true. Sarai was his half-sister, so it wasn't a complete lie, but it was a ruse concocted to deceive the Egyptians. It was so underhand, it was so despicable on so many levels, and it demonstrated just how far Abraham had wandered from faith in God's promises. Not only had he turned his back on God's promise of a land by leaving Canaan at the first sign of trouble, here he was turning his back on God's promise of many descendants by giving up his wife to the Egyptians. And this is a sobering warning of where acting out of fear instead of faith can lead us. When we lose sight of God, when we act sinfully to try and achieve our desires, that only ends in tears. You see, Abraham's ruse, in his mind, was probably designed with some Egyptian nobleman in mind. Passing Sarai off as his sister would allow him to, to negotiate with some wealthy Egyptian and buy him some time uh, in the land before whisking her away again and heading off back up to Canaan when things were, were better back there. But Abraham, he hadn't banked on one thing. The main man himself, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, got wind that there was a beautiful woman in the land, and he wasn't about to let her pass him by. Look with me at verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now again, notice Sarai isn't referred to there by name. Again, she's just called the woman. She was being passed around like an object. Pharaoh took her into his harem to be used for his gratification. And so pleased was he with his new acquisition that he showered Abraham with gifts. Among them, Abraham was given female donkeys and camels. And that gives us a sense of just how lavish these gifts were. Female donkeys were far more expensive than male donkeys because they were far more dependable. And camels, at that time, they were actually a rarity. They could only be obtained by the wealthiest in Egyptian society. They were a symbol of status and privilege, kind of like handing over a Rolls Royce or a, a Lamborghini. 
And Pharaoh, he gave Abram camels, plural. Abram's sinful, faithless actions made him a very wealthy man. Who says crime doesn't pay? But as we go on in the story of Abram, we'll see that, that these gifts that he received from Pharaoh, they would lead to great heartache and pain. It would lead to a, a family dispute with his nephew Lot and to a very broken situation with Hagar, one of the female servants that he acquired from Pharaoh. Abram's sin, it had consequences. Even after this incident, when Abram and Sarai were, were restored and, and Abram got back on track in his walk with God, he still had to endure the consequences of his sinful actions. And sadly, that's the reality of sin. We never sin in isolation. It has damaging effects on our own lives and on the lives of others. But despite Abram's faithlessness, despite his deceit, his utter selfishness, God never forgot his promises. He stepped in and he saved Abram despite his foolishness. If you look with me at verse 17, we read there, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Even though Abram had forgotten him, even though he tried to take matters into his own hands, even though he had behaved abominably towards his own wife, God overruled. He protected Sarai. Notice Sarai's name is used when it refers to God's care of her. He sent plagues on Pharaoh's house, and that's not the last time that would happen. And he left Pharaoh in no doubt that Sarai wasn't his to keep. And so Abram and Sarai were reunited. And Abram was sent packing by Pharaoh, verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, those verses are such a sad indictment of Abraham's behavior in Egypt. That a pagan king, a worshiper of false gods, would rightly condemn the behavior of a man of God. That Abraham would be escorted out of Egypt in silence with his tail firmly between his legs. What a contrast to the legacy of worship he left behind him in Canaan. Abraham's visit to Egypt was a shameful episode in his life of faith. A time when instead of the Lord being magnified, it was Abraham's sin that was on full display. Abraham did nothing to commend the name of God to the Egyptians. And yet, God wasn't finished with him. Abraham may have forgotten God, but God hadn't forgotten him. Abraham may have failed. He may have been guilty of some terrible things. But even when Abraham was faithless, 
God, in His amazing grace, remained faithful to His promises. Now, we would do well to ask, how could a perfect, holy God, who cannot have anything to do with sin, how could He remain faithful in the face of such failure? Well, because ultimately, his relationship with Abraham, it wasn't based on Abraham's performance. It was based on God's promise, specifically God's promise of descendants. The promise of a seed, one who would come from the line of Abraham, one who who would succeed where Abraham failed, one who would remain faithful even to death. You see, God continued to work out His good purposes in the life of Abraham. He even used this this dark episode of failure in Abraham's life to shape him into the man that he would become. And that is the wonderful thing, the amazing thing about God's grace, that even the darkest, most shameful moments of our lives, God takes those dark threads and He weaves them into His rich tapestry of grace. In His kind providence, nothing is wasted, not even our sinful failures. And when we stumble, when we forget God, when we suffer the consequences of our sin, we can know that we are not defined ultimately by our sin, but by the seed of Abraham, the one who is our Savior. A Savior who lived a life of perfect faith. A Savior who never stumbled into sin. A Savior who never failed and yet chose to go to His death for our failure. He chose to bear the punishment for our sin so that we could know what it is to be forgiven, blameless forever in our Father's sight. It's because of our Savior Jesus that Abraham's failure wasn't the end of his story. And it's because of Jesus that our sin, our failure, doesn't need to be the end of ours. For anyone who's put their faith in Jesus, our past, our present, and our future has been paid for once and for all because the faithful one never failed. And so we can live lives of faith as God's Spirit works within us, sanctifying us as we grow more and more and more like Jesus, securing the knowledge that even when we do fail, He remains faithful and He will never leave nor forsake His people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who is just, who needs to deal with sin. And we thank you that in Christ you have. Lord God, you know our our lives inside out. You know our stumbles, our failures, our struggles. And yet we thank you that in your grace and mercy, you have given us hope in the Lord Jesus, that in Him we can know that that we are forgiven and free. 
And so we pray, Lord God, that we would live lives that are, are joyful and thankful as we remember who you are and, and what you've done. Lives that, that are, are, are full of grace and kindness towards one another as we remember your grace and kindness towards us. And we pray these things as we come to the table now to take bread and wine, that, that you would remind us again of your faithfulness to us in the Lord Jesus. Amen.